All right. Welcome back, family. This is Kevin Orris, joined by my esteemed colleagues, Catalas, Daniel Dick. This is Trilog number 12. We're going to talk about the historical emergence of traditional archetypes in so far as gender roles, man and woman, sexuality. And as always, this is part of a series where we are discussing topics philosophically, psychologically, and interpersonally all around the relation between the sexes and really around identity and metaphysics itself within these topics, which can be quite intricate, complex, and beautiful. So if you're following along, thank you for being here. And let's get into it, gentlemen. Hey, thanks, thanks for that, Kevin. And uh, great to be back with you guys. And thanks for everyone who's joining us now or live or watching this after <clears throat> the broadcast. We're talking about the emergence of, of man and woman or the idea that man and woman are like trans-historical archetypes, um, which is a topic we discuss in chapter two of our book, Sex, Masculinity, and God. And in this trialogue, we're going to try and go a little bit deeper into what we started to unpack in chapter two of our, of our first book. So I want to, I, I want to, you know, trying to understand how to direct this conversation or how to guide this conversation in relationship with what we were able to achieve in our first conversation about sexual difference was a little bit of a, a little bit of a struggle, but as after reading our first attempt to go into the archetypes of man and woman, I wanted to, to challenge us a little bit about man and woman as orientation points or, or ideals. Because we also talked about in the last um, trialogue about the image being an ideal and also a power in itself and that it's kind of keeps moving, keeps going, keeps representing itself. Um, and even once you know it's just an image or just an idea, it nonetheless has emotion. It nonetheless has a power and a reality of its own. Um, and trying to understand how it's orienting us or trying to understand how it is changing historically which is an important thing to think about when we think about archetypes, because archetypes are more, we think about archetypes as something that doesn't necessarily change. So like, for example, um, the idea of man or the idea of woman is eternal. It doesn't change. It's the same in its essence. But I felt like in our, our last conversation, we, we were able to go a little bit deeper into how they've changed. And even that there are possible orientations like man and woman, but different or other than man and woman, which are um, still emerging, S some, some sort of androgy more androgynous, more harder to categorize um, images, harder to categorize um, than, the, than just man or woman. It's kind of like a third other category. So in that sense, I want to again give a quote from Slavoj Žižek. Um, and this quote is meant to challenge the you could say the Jungian notion of archetypes and so I want really this to be to be uh, an idea that we go deep into so here's the quote 
The Freudian unconscious is not the substantial domain of Jungian archetypes as the ultimate psychic reality of the subject's being. The unconscious belongs to the virtual space of pure potentiality, which is actualized and acquires social reality in the phenomenon of transference, end quote. So what that quote means is that the unconscious is not these hard eternal ideas that already exist. The unconscious is more this virtual potential and this virtual potential gets actualized when we intimately talk with each other. So when we intimately talk with each other, like say you're in an intimate relationship, say you're with friends and you're just openly talking to each other, this is where the pure potential of the unconscious actualizes itself, becomes manifest. And what, what Zizek is trying to say is that this process of intimate discourse with the other is not overdetermined by man and woman. It's rather that man and woman emerged because those concepts made sense historically. So in other words, man and woman were concepts which emerged because in intimate conversations originally, those were potentials of the idea which were found useful. And so in this sense, the unconscious both allows for this emergence of binary opposition, but at the same time is very open, is very open to difference, very open to new potentials, very open to intimate conversations, exploring other territories, othernesses. So in our original conversation, we kind of said, that the historical archetypes made sense in relationship to one reproduction for the, for the feminine, because you have the mother-child bond and reproduction and the mother-child bond are incredibly deep, incredibly um, powerful motives for unconscious speech. And then on the man's side, we had the productivity, the work and the labor. And th that was also a very powerful driver for the logic of the masculine archetype and so forth. Now, what's interesting that we went into is how in the modern world, the very process of transference or our intimate conversations are themselves changing. Like, for example, in our last conversation, Kevin, you brought up that it evidence that we're going to more androgyny because men are willing to take on more of a, a reproductive burden and they're willing to be in the home more and they're willing to uh, be more parental figures in the home and so forth. Uh, and all, we also all, all discussed how women in the last few decades are defining their identity around their work and their productivity. So clearly these major orientation points are trans. Are, are, are themselves going through huge transformation. Of course, reproduction and work, um, at least at this moment, aren't going anywhere. So there's still huge orientation points. But beyond these orientation points, still the image will keep moving and keep producing otherness, other identities. Um, so identities which don't want to be tethered to reproduction or identities that don't want to be tethered to just work.
So my question is kind of thinking on the one hand, how these old systems of valuation made the archetypes, how these old systems of valuation are undergoing deep transformation today. We are a part of that. We're going through that. These conversations are a part of that and so forth. And on the other hand, there's this otherness that's a, that, that could be. And the metaphor I want to give for this otherness that could be, it's from two different movies, but it's part of a general uh, theme in movies. It's this idea of a very intelligent and a very complex alien, but that is asexual, okay? So a very intelligent and a very complex alien that's asexual. So the two examples I can think of is the original alien movie. The original alien movie, they have asexual intelligent creature. Um, so it reproduces itself. It doesn't need the man and the woman to reproduce itself. It reproduces itself on its own. Um, and then there's another movie called Enemy Mine from the 1980s, which is less well-known, but also a really good movie for this example of this. In, there's humans meet another intelligent species and this species is asexual. So they're both masculine and feminine in one and it changes every, they like they're a totally different entity because of that. So uh, I hope that's again, a good example of uh, to spice the imagination up and to, to get Cadell, us thinking Cadell about loves stuff. the alien metaphors. This is, I think the third complex of alien metaphors from you. And I'm- exactly. Absolutely. I'm following, absolutely. I'm following. I'll, th I'll throw you, Kevin. I'll throw it to you, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is fascinating to kind of pick this up where we left off. And that's what's so beautiful about continuing these trialogues. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when, I'll, I'll briefly share a perspective when you were first speaking, and then it's shifted to, I think, something more excited. But I was really, as you were speaking, trying to zoom all the way out and just imagine. And again, the myth of Adam and Eve comes up because it's, it's this primordial Western myth that is ingrained in a lot of the culture we're all used to. But like imagine early men and women, like what we would describe as men and women, hominids, you know, homo, one of the homo species, whether it's erectus or Neanderthal or magnon, whatever, which, whichever one, pick, pick whenever you think humans happened or things like humans. Like you have a male bodied being and a, and a, and a female bodied being. They probably didn't have these archetypes well-developed at all, but there were tendencies and there were behavioral clusters and there were relationships. Okay, this being is really strong and has a really like a drive to him that is aggressive maybe in an ancestral wild environment. This being is also strong, but less aggressive actually is more seeking pair bonding, maybe is seeking something else. And like, you know, you can fit in whatever you believe early men and women were acting like, but you can imagine a situation where these archetypes weren't formed and how was the interaction played out? Was it just power? Was it just dominance? Was it just physicality? Or were there unspoken pheromonal perhaps reactions that, that happen and develop and then form creodes, right? A creode being a mental or emotional pattern that gains a lot of repetitions and therefore gains a complex momentum. So I'm, I'm real, I was really trying to think about, and I think it's hard to do because we've been raised in a society that's fully enveloped in these archetypes or these traditional man and woman ideas. Now, what might be more exciting is 
you know, we were speaking before the call, Kidel, about abundance versus scarcity. And I believe in a world of hyperabundance, for example, if you're watching this streaming on the internet, either on your smartphone or computer, you probably are in the top 10% of the world because you have an internet connection and this amazing device. And um, the abundance that we have access to in 2020 is hyperabundance. Food, water, shelter, luxury of any kind, travel of any kind, although 2020 has challenged that, et cetera. You can just take it to whatever extreme. And you don't have to be a super rich person to experience this. Any person can order an Uber. Any person can buy a plane ticket. Any person can go to McDonald's and get like 40 kilos of food for nothing. My point is in hyperabundance, the other is more allowed to emerge. In a scarcity environment, the traditional archetypes are completely dominant because any aberration, any experimentation outside a traditional archetype was probably punishable by lack of reproduction, abnormality, or some kind of falling off of the evolutionary bandwagon, right? And so as we've approached hyperabundance and as technology has exponentially raised, this glooming otherness is in the field of humanity. And it's not just with gender. It's, it's, it's emerging in all domains, I believe, simultaneously. This otherness that's like, okay, this is, this is something else. It's not something we can easily categorize into Democrat, Republican, male, female, good, evil. You know, Pick your duality. The other represents a triad energy, which you know, at least a triad energy, actually a multiplicity, as we've spoken a lot about that severely challenges the dyad that has formed much of human civilization. So I'll just open that Pandora's box and pass it to you, Daniel. Thank you, Cadell. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you much for this introductory thoughts. I mean, where I want to pick up from here, it's like um, the notion of where we are at now. As you said, like, we have this hyperabundance, superabundance right now. We had emerged out of an industrial area into an informational area where the, the otherness is completely different than we had in the traditional separation of man going work and woman is going for, for children and raising up uh, the children. And I think that is really the crucial shift that we are right now globally. And this is for the first time in the record of our history, you know, that we have this extent globally. I mean, as you also said, we are lucky to, to be like the 10% that have internet and these ones are globally connected that had been never happened before. Maybe it did through some a stone age connection or something like that we don't know but um i think when we when we have the otherness that is emerging now completely different it comes to to an evolution that on one hand coming from the feminist revolution in this 70s 60s where women could take up the public sphere, everything that was visible, and uh, positions, leadership, and political female leaders, and so on, they kind of stepped into this androgynous field, 
saying, okay, it doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. You know, we just quit this, uh, these categories and we try to have equal access to it. On the other hand, what is happening, it's like this backlash that I'm kind of very interested in, that the otherness in yourself, you know, especially now in this corona time, etc., there, there had been a lot of a lot of fear, which is like one of the bases of uh, of the otherness in your mind. So when you have like uh, this metaphorical association of there, there is something out there, you know, but actually it's also like a part of your creation of your mind that you think it is someone other to relate. So I think especially in this last year that we have encountered so much fear around corona, separation, like wearing masks, social distancing, and so on. The otherness has become something very far away so that it could emerge better as something internal because we have been like locked down or whatever. So spending a lot of time in yourself, going around with your mind and thinking about how this world is going to end or continue. So I think that the otherness has become very much something inside yourself. And this is like a move that I can see very, very modern times because on one hand, the, the spiritual tradition are like rising up more because of the need of handling fears and emotions that are coming up with the circumstances we are facing right now out there. But on the other hand, so because the, the move that had been done in the public and political and economic sphere to have equal power to woman and man now has like this the silent revolution that is like inside yourself. You know, it was a, the androgynous came up with the feminist revolution in the public sphere. It's like an androgynous revolution in the, in the field of the mind and the emotions inside of yourself. And uh, I think that is a big battlefield that most people are facing right now. So when it comes to to the primordial archetypes, you know, it is always a uh, mythologically or in religions, it has been always uh, a kind of, yeah, map for yourself, you know, for, for strengthening your mind to, to face your fears, to face your otherness with compassion and not seeing them anymore as something other than you. Well, that's what basically every religion, every tradition that holds moral rules and develops ethics from within is, is telling you. I think that's kind of a, a big shift that we have now where it's becoming a big move in the masses. So I'll, I'll put it like this for now. Okay. I'm not sure if my image is still frozen or not. Is, it's, it, is it, I, I'm, am I coming through clearly? 
I can hear you clearly, but I, I see black only. So I don't know if you restart your video uh, or what. I can I, see I, you. I, okay, I tried to re I tried to restart it and, and all that, well, but we'll if just Daniel have to can see you, we might me. be fine then. It might just be me. Yeah. Well, anyway, we'll we'll continue on if my voice is fine. That's the most important. Um. So yeah, I love this. It seems like this was set up. This was this was set up well because I feel like we're we're exploring a language and a territory that actually differentiates us from our original conversation on the emergence of historical archetypes. So to me, it's crucial is that we recognize that the archetypes of man and woman didn't exist in the pre-symbolic realm. So like as Kevin was emphasizing, when humans emerged, whenever humans emerged, became linguistic, became hyper-dependent on our symbolic cognition and so forth, it probably was there's these, uh, there's these original instincts or tendencies, behavioral clusters and so forth, which were kind of like the working ground, like the original working ground that symbolic, symbolic material could then shape these into conscious drives. Um, and that these conscious drives, tethered as they were to the logic of reproduction, childbearing, work, and so forth, and the differentiation of the biological bodies in relationship to these intuitive functions, was done in a massive scarcity, was done in a massive limit, uh, natural limitation. And then now there's this crucial emergence of a hyperabundant information era um, where these archetypes lose their, it's almost like people, like I almost feel like, react, like reactionary conservatism, like reactionary conservatism being people, political pundits and so forth, general population as well that strongly identify with the archetypes you know like i am really a man and i am really a woman you know like and i'm gonna i'm gonna go into the home and i'm gonna raise my kids and be a stay-at-home mom just like the good women in the 1960s did 1950s did back before we had a degradation of society and so forth uh or like the men who say you know men should you know uh take responsibility for the home and take care of their, their woman and take care of the children and all that and really identify with that, that that's kind of like, it's a reaction to what Kevin re referred to as looming otherness. This is a very good word, looming otherness. And um, this looming otherness as this field, which cannot be easily categorized I do think it's important to emphasize that in my view anyway, it's actually a triadic energy, not a multiplicity. I think multiplicity is actually the mistake here, like that there's the tendency to interpret this looming otherness as a multiplicity. And this is what this is. This is the foundation of Gilles Deleuze's philosophy, for example. Gilles Deleuze's philosophy emphasized this as multiplicity. What I think multiplicity ignores is actually that the looming otherness has a higher order structure to it. And that higher order structure is, I think, triadic in nature. And I think it's actually really a useful logic. This is why dialectics is so interesting today. And I think going through a revival 
is that the triadic logic actually allows one to sort of understand the oppositional determination of left and right, man and woman and so forth, but also to perceive this otherness which is emerging and is becoming something different, but with, with a different logic, not just pure multiplicity. Um, and I think Daniel's right to emphasize that it is in this transition to the industrial to the information era. And in some sense, women, women in some sense are pioneers of this looming otherness in some sense. And men are, men, many men in their own way are also uh, in, into this looming otherness. And I think the way men explore looming otherness is at the moment kind of, I don't know if it's, it's, it's too quickly moralized, I would say. The way women explore looming otherness, I think it is, I think it's, I think it's more accepted. It's more accepted and, and, and still men exploring looming otherness is still more moralized because what it seems to me anyway, and I could be wrong, is that there still is a desire on the side of people who identify as women to sort of do the androgynous thing and go into the working world, but they still want the man that they had in the traditional world. And I think that that is a big deadlock for men. That's why it gets moralized too quickly. So that's why I wanna to bring to Daniel's point that this looming otherness is actually internal. I would argue that it has always been internal. It's only that we're now realizing it's internal because of the abundance and we're not in the scarcity mindset anymore. So we have more time to go into ourselves. So exploring this otherness in yourself, it's, I would say, again, it, it has something that's become inside yourself, but it's, I think it's always been inside yourself. And then this becoming deeper inside yourself basically puts you into a territory where you have to interact with me as a singularity. You have to interact with me as a singularity. I think that's the crucial notion. This is, this is where the triad folds into one, the three into one, like that you can no longer interact with me through the frame of man and the expectations you have about man. You have to interact with me as Cadell, as a pure singularity as such. I, I, I moved through the frame of man due to certain historical necessities, certain historical logic through transference, through my intimate conversations in my 20s and so forth. But the deeper I go into the man, man category, the deeper I recognize its contradictions, the deeper I recognize the way in which it imprisons me, the deeper I realize the way in which other women who identify as women will interact with me in a way that I actually don't like because they can't see me as a singularity. They don't see me as Cadell. They don't understand my internal otherness. So I would say that, 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 these, I like thinking about the archetypes like man and woman as like training, training wheels on a bicycle. So like before you can ride a bike, you need training wheels to keep the bike steady, to keep the bike balanced. 
you could say to keep your bike harmoniously balanced. <laughs> but, but at a certain point, you don't need the training wheels anymore. And I think that the categories man and woman might be like that, like that the training wheels break off. And then what happens is what are you left with? You're left with a singular drive. You know, you just have singular drive and and I have my Cadell singular drive. And then Kevin, Daniel, this is the way I would think that I'm not, I can't, if I was to interact with you, Kevin, or if I was interact with you, Daniel, through my preconceptions of what man are, man is, then I would be missing this irreducible singularity of what you could be. And that is in the field of this intimate conversations. So I'll pass that to you, Kevin. Yeah, it's fascinating that the other is emerging so strongly in this in this discussion. I think it's not a coincidence. Um, but when you were speaking, Cadell and Daniel, I was really feeling into this energetic around the polarity reversal or the gender reversal of roles that has occurred in the last hundred years, and what it means for the archetype. Does it mean that the archetype was never that fixed? Because if a woman can take up a man's roles in productivity, labor, workplace direction, and if men can take up the roles of childbearer and nurturer and um, traditionally more feminine roles, you know, take your pick. Like, were the archetypes ever fixed or is it just the custom? And if you look at custom and culture as an operating system that humans adopt to be successful in their environment, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And again, because of hyperabundance, because of um, this global melting pot, I think globalization, while it's increased world markets, which has led to more trade, which has led to more tech, which has led to more abundance, globalization has also merged a lot of cultures. You know, there's been the great merging of East and West, you know, yoga is a billion dollar industry in America and Europe now. It's like, this is an ancient Indian philosophy. And that's just one example. There's thousands of examples of globalization as this merging process. And I think the gender archetypes or man and woman as they have existed are merging worldwide. And so what a Chinese father of four and businessman looks like versus a man in the 1960s American custom is maybe very different, but also very much the same. And then the new otherness that things like the civil rights movement and things like the study of esoteric and mystical traditions, things like the introduction of plant medicine and the discovery of the unconscious, empirically through these massive experiences, you know, you can just pick and choose different areas. I think music and art have pushed otherness. The musical genres that have emerged, just electronic music alone, and the otherness that came with it, you know, like, and these are all things I'm interested in separately. So it's just, I, it's easy for me to geek out on them, but you could pick almost any domain, ones that I probably know nothing about. And someone listening to this would be able to say, oh yeah, well, in the last hundred years, a massive otherness trend has emerged. And so it makes me wonder, like, from an evolutionary lens, if I look at 
man and woman and how they've interacted and reared children and created economies and reinforced customs and a culture, if it is an operating system, which an operating system can be upgraded. And obviously, you know, I'm not fighting saber-toothed tigers or starving in the cold anymore in my situation. I'm very grateful for that. But now what is happening with social media and the, and the internet and globalization as it's emerged in all levels, like, you know, the clothes I'm wearing, the tech I'm using, was it all shipped in from Mumbai, Singapore? Like, you know, it, it's so intense, the connection points on earth right now. And I think it's only speeding up that the other, maybe one of its first targets to use Cadell's favorite metaphors around the alien, maybe one of the first targets of this otherness which is an evolutionary filter of some kind is what it feels like. It's a, it's a system of transition. Maybe one of the first things it targets is traditional gender archetypes. Pass it to you, Daniel. Thank you, gentlemen. I think um, where I want to continue this conversation is especially when we think about the otherness that is out there, which has been like, actually it's evolving towards a singularity where we have been with uh, what Cadell said, and we're not able really to perceive that singularity. And when, when we are talking in here, for example, and we use the language, we always kind of use uh, categories. You know, we say, okay, we're talking about man, or we say uh, about table. So it's not the one table. It it skips away from the immediate perception of the singular entity that is in front of us. So as long as we we use language to describe something that is not actually here and now there in your perceptive field, we won't be able to get out of the perception of the singularity individual being because we have to organize ourselves somehow. And that has been like, it's this evolutionary step that we can uh, perceive a lot of things that are not actually here and now. We can plan to say, okay, let's meet and have these trialogues in the future and for that we need language to to have this abstract field of uh, consents to say okay we're meeting at that time at this place so i think when we come to the ideal to be able to get rid of all categories could it be man woman could it be any other category to, to name actually that skips us away from the present moment to perceive the very singular moment it had to have such an organization around that you might be the only one that uh, don't care about you know the future or the past so this is what happens very often in uh, in uh, big spiritual traditions you know to, to have everybody around the, the guru and the lama or whatever to keep this person in place to just stay focused. Also very high political leaders, you know, that they don't have to care about 
what they are doing tomorrow because the secretary is doing it. You know, you just can stay present to uh, good decisions. And if we want to move like uh, globally on on a on a scale that we are able not to bother around this otherness that is also linked to our time perception to our cultural uh, language you know it it is a very big step into moving in a pure synchronicity of just happenings you know that is uh, that is quite an utopia you know that is maybe also what happened in the golden age or what uh, what Platon had said about you know, that might be also a very, uh, a paradise place again, you know, where we can, can kind of step back from the fall since we had like the knowledge gained by the apple and the snake. And yeah, forget about the, the knowledge itself again, just stay, stay present and look into every otherness as the singular moment that is vanishing at the same moment. So this is kind of a, a question that rose, that arise from me, because um, we, we talked about the ideal and the real, and if it falls together in a complete oneness, that is you, where the you is not only you, but also the, the otherness, it is a very enlightened state of what has been described by Buddhas and so on. And if we go into a third, you know, it has been always like man, woman, and maybe a child, or the trinity of, of every goddess. What I observed, if you look into the evolution of uh, mythologies, they always go, go from the absolute oneness, the creator, or whatever, to the whole chaos of uh, of the mythology that is out there. So where is the beginning of, of time, actually? In, and the beginning of time, of the beginning of mythology leads us like a pathway that we have to read actually backwards when we read the mythology forward to gain back into the state of singularity itself. So the step out of a three-ness to a one, to a two-ness or to an otherness and myself to a complete oneness is something that can happen. And I think it can be also actualized every time, but I see the difficulty actually how the masses could can coordinate itself just in this happenings of synchronicities of pure potentiality actually no i don't know if i make myself understand this stream of thought let's give it to you okay so i think the start the starting the starting point here to me with this is that to me it's obvious that the archetypes were never fixed the archetypes emerge from chaos and 
that's in some sense the reversal that occurs in modern philosophy from traditional mythological accounts of the beginning to what Hegel described in his Phenomenology of Spirit, which is that you don't start with the oneness and then go into the whole chaos. It's you start in chaos and then the oneness emerges. That's the crucial reversal in Hegel. It reverses the pre-modern views of this. In the beginning, there was oneness. In the beginning, there was nothing. Yeah. In the beginning, there's the just point. a primordial... Can uh -huh. you stay in the nothingness, you know? Can you stay in the absolute chaos? And be you, nothing as chaos? You can't. You can't. You can't. You have that's the fall. You've like as soon as soon as as soon as there's language, as soon as there's logos, then the fall has begun. And there's no there's no like everything that organizes the story of the oneness, the original oneness and the fall is the word. The word is doing that. The narrative is doing that. The fall is a narrativization of reality and so forth. And all the, all the uh, idea of the fixed categories emerge in that fall. So it's like, it's, it's, it's to me the ultimate paradox of, of, of the traditional mythology or the ultimate paradox of the, the, the intuitive spirituality. Because intuitive spirituality it always, it always um, forgets that it's speaking. This is, to me, the major problem with intuitive spirituality is they think that because they're against logic, language, and so forth, and they privilege intuition, pre-symbolic cognition, so-called pre-symbolic cognition, then they forget that they're still speaking no, you can't get out of it. You can't get out of it. This is this is this is the crucial. This is the crucial. I think Hegelian point, and it makes it makes Plato. It revives Plato in some sense. It makes Plato once again something worth diving into just as deeply as we ever have, um, because. When we use language, we're making categories, right? Like Daniel, you're saying man, the category, table, the category. Um, but that, that we immediately abstract from our immediate perception to the general category of man or the general category of table. I think that it's just that power, that power shouldn't be removed, but transformed as such. Like, that's kind of like what Kevin, I think, is trying to get at when he says we need new language, we need new categories. It's just that the problem, the problem for these new categories, these new, this new language, is that in order to create categories of the highest value, you need to be very close to what Lacan called primordial symbolization. And primordial symbolization is basically the wailing that, of the child when they come out of the womb. And even for Lacan, symbolization that isn't closely connected to the primal scene is almost useless because it's all a defense. It's all a defense against the original symbolization. So to 
try to make this to try to make this somewhat hopefully more coherent what i think is interesting that daniel's pointing towards and intimating towards is that in order to be in language and also to be in the present moment which is the which to me is ultimate paradox ultimate difficulty ultimate spiritual struggle to do both is you have to have your entire external reality already kind of organized and taken care of because that all always takes us away and makes us make a story of the past and the future. So like, for example, Daniel gave the example of the political leaders that they can stay present because everything is organized around them with the secretary, with whatever. And I think that that is basically the promise or the possibility of the global brain in its highest maturation. The global brain in its highest maturation, say for example, it's 2030 and we all have digital assistants that are basically just as intelligent in terms of their functioning as a secretary. We would all have our wor worlds in some sense self-organized around our individual consciousness. And in some sense, all of the practical affairs of the world would be taken care of. And then that would give us the space to explore this space of pure potentiality the pure potentiality of our ideal and the real and so forth like that, then to me, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to fall into a oneness. I don't know what it means, but it does mean that we would get the space to engage with each other as pure singularities. And that's a field. It's not a oneness. It's not that we're all one. It's, there's a field of singularities. So, that's, I'll throw that to you, Kevin. Yeah, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, <laughs> interacting with each other as singularities mediated through AI, you know, we're like dipping into the futurism portion of the book right now, but it's fascinating to imagine how a human society would function. And I, I don't even have a clear picture. I'm just throwing this out there. Um, with beings, as we said earlier, Cadell, without training wheels around traditional archetypes of man and woman. If every being in a society, whether they were in a male or female body, um, had dissolved that duality in, in some sense, in some meaningful sense, and I don't even know what that looks like. Like, it doesn't mean everyone's like, hermaphroditic or something or has like both genitalia i think that doesn't make any sense and is extreme it's much more and, and this is where like the the a lot of the tantric philosophy in the taoist and the hindu lineage points at this even the alchemists in the medieval europe point at this the heroes gamos right it's the dissolving of the masculine and feminine parts of mind or psyche and they coagulate into one and it forms the stone right the lapis philosophorum, like the, the stone of eternal life, the kundalini shakti manifest, whatever you want to call it. So I'm trying to understand how a society would even look. What would it resemble? What would the values be? What would the, the governance be like? What would the economy be like? If beings had like progressively created this reality of inner union, dissolving the man and woman to polarity, so when you encountered a being, like say it was a, a beautiful woman who's in a female body, 
but the archetype of, oh, woman and all the things my brain would just fill in was collapsed. That doesn't exist. It's just like, oh, it's just a being, it's a singularity. And they have these, these characteristics, but they won't fit into neat archetypes anymore because they're, there is this triadic energy of otherness. And I think you're right, Cadell, that it is, there is a triad there, um, man, woman, and other. And they form together in consciousness into something super powerful. And I think even at that level, presuming that there are beings, you know, maybe as soon as 2030 with AI digital assistance, we can, we can all just sit around and do like Kriyas and Kundalini breath work and collapse our inner polarities of man and woman and the archetypes. Maybe that's possible. But even then, I believe a human being, certainly from my limited perspective right now, with the collapsed duality, with interacting as a singularity, moving beyond traditional archetypes, I would still choose an archetype because of the utility it creates and maybe the stylistic expression it creates. And maybe because it's just plain fun. I don't think humans can do well in the chaos, right? The pure chaos or the singularity. It's almost like trying to pour water into a vase, right? A glass, which is a construct of personality, ego, which is quite useful, as we were discussing before the call, Cadell, versus just dumping the water on the ground where it'll evaporate. It covers a lot more surface area, but without any structure or containment, it almost loses all meaning and actually is dispersed in that way. And I think consciousness may be similar. I'll leave it there for you, Daniel. Thank you very much. I, I was thinking now while you have been talking that, you know, especially the last, uh, the last chapter two that we talked about this uh, emergence about the historical archetypes. We talked a lot about this loss of orientation that man experienced that you didn't know if you can be just man, you know, because uh, it has been like me too, violent uh, man, patriarchism is bad because they start war and so on. So there is a beautiful uh, stability to, to, to be just a man and do what mans do, you know, and have on the other side a woman that is a woman and she does what the women do. And then we create like this balance, which create all this friction around us and there's the possibility to have this very sexual attraction out of the, the difference where you always keep the otherness outside of yourself. But in, in regard to that, I kind of changed a bit my mind because I felt like really a bit stuck in this uh, stability. And I had to move forward to more like a Buddhist way of, of thinking that uh, like you can't really get out of this wheel you know because it's a wheel that turns around that we also described as this horrible or this cycle that would happen in and um so i was thinking actually the the, the three that are there is actually this nothingness 
and the dual aspect. Whereas the dual aspect is the wheel of up and downs of man and woman. And you can be this nothingness, which is the, the chaos, but that gives us a rise to a creative process if it's filled up with compassion. You know, that's kind of the goal of, of this Buddhist uh, tradition, to be empty with your mind and be just full of compassion. You know, for whatever ups and downs and whatever um, attraction, desires, and so on might bring up the world for you. You just stay there and you have compassion for it. And I truly believe that even by, by being in a, such a state, which is quite hard to achieve to stay such focus with your mind, you might be able to engage with other people and have sex and raise children in a way but i think it's a quite challenging one and and i for myself i i had to think about taking up this challenge because otherwise i felt like wow I, i'm not moving forward you know if i just take this uh, road of okay, we're engaging in suffering, we accept the suffering and we indulge it. No, it's, it's not, it, it can't be a solution, you know? So we, we have to strive for something that is out there and where some people say, okay, the, we can get out of this wheel of samsara and some other people actually did, you know? And they're watching for us and waiting and giving us a protection to do it also. You know, so they're kind of interacting as well as being in this nothingness with filled of compassion, looking at our duality at us and saying, well, come on, you can do it too. So I want to move this really forward out of a dualistic aspect of looking to, to uh, we can't put the three, but three is the dual one, but also the one that can't step out of it, you know, that can step out of this, this judgment that is out there to say, this is this and this is here. And I, I want to believe in it, to, to keep the wheel is spinning out of his, his former rounds and rounds, you know. So I'll keep it here. Okay, so maybe to to summarize a little bit, and then we can sort of go into our 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 final thoughts on this emergence of man and woman. I think in the first conversation, we really focused on the reasoning behind the emergence of man and woman again in in the book, uh, Sex, Masculinity, and God. And I think now we are seeing kind of the the logic that preceded the emergence of man and woman and this original chaos. And then we can see that this original chaos is also somehow temporally still with us. It didn't go anywhere. And it's actually a looming otherness. 
that's 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 still trying to be generative, still trying to be creative, still trying to bring something other to the world. And that connection here brings us to this weird synergy, weird relation between technology on the one hand, information era, digitalization, artificial intelligence, so forth. Without that, this none of this looming otherness would be possible. And on the other hand, pure spirituality, um, going deeper into what we are deeply as beings, going into deeply, you know, ways in which we can be with our body, be with our consciousness to push new le levels of understanding. And that what we tap into in this space is kind of like the man, woman, and then the other is that traditionally the other has always been the child because man and woman, yet we come together, we don't merge into one, we make a child, which is its own singularity, which passes through us and then it's different than us, it's other to us. So the deepest question to me is, and this started sometimes my intellectual career, one of my first publications actually, Will we keep reproducing? Will biological reproduction continue forever? Or will it change fundamentally in its, in its essence? We stop reproducing and that we transform to such a level that the otherness doesn't go away, becomes stronger maybe, but it's no longer filled in with the child. Now, in Zizek's philosophy, what's crucial with this man, woman, and other, is for man, it's kind of like man, woman, other. Man is not woman. So man tries to be with the woman. But woman is other to herself. So in other words, woman isn't defined by being not man. Woman is other also to herself. To her. The, that dimension, and of course that, of course that becomes the child. Because child is other than Because the and the child in Freudian terms, her sub that and has a very difficult to reveal itself with this non categorizable otherness. Man always and will always try to put it in categories. Man will always start to do that. As long as there's a strong identification. Woman can be symbolized. Karel, I don't know if that's also for Kevin the case, but this is you the can't note. listen to you very good. It gets a bit stuck. You're breaking up a bit, brother. 
I can hear Daniel okay, so I'm not sure. Um, yeah, maybe try video off. I'm, I'm, I'm back. Oh, there we go. Yeah, now you're clear. Okay. So was I, did, did my last point come through? I think make it again, woman is other to herself and? So the, the, crucial, the crucial notion is that man is defined by being not woman, but woman is not defined by being not man. Woman is the other for man, but that's internal to woman, which is just a relationship with her and herself, which becomes child. That otherness is becomes child because the child literally passes through her and the child becomes, again, in Freudian terms, the substitute phallus. But the crucial thing is if we stop reproducing and this otherness which passes through woman is not categorizable. Man wants to categorize everything, but there's something in man's categories which escape man. Of course, that's woman because woman will never be ultimately categorized fully. There'll always be something mysterious in woman, which man will never be able to get. So that otherness, which is in woman, is not, it's crucial. It's not symbolic, but it's not pre-symbolic. It's an extra symbolic material, which emerges from the symbolic chain's own activity. This is, this is, this is to me so crucial is it's a, it's kind of like the excess, the unintegratable excess of the symbolic chain itself. So, and that ultimately becomes the child. But if we stop reproducing, then we have to confront that itself. And that to me is that to me is the mystery because otherwise we just have children and the cycle goes on and everything keeps going on as, as it is. If I could frame it in the way Daniel was trying to say with this, you have the dual aspect and the nothingness. The dual aspect is the wheel, the Ouroboros, but the crucial thing in our symbol of the Ouroboros is that there's a, a gap in it. There's, it's not a closed in on itself. That's the otherness created by the symbolic chain itself, in my view. And that is always there, meaning that you can always destroy your categories and emerge new categories. But you can't, as it were, get like, they're not fixed. But once, they're, once the categories emerge in the present moment, it's as if they were always there. So for example, bef like before man and woman, the categories weren't there. Then once man and woman come up with the categories, man and woman, it's as if they were always there. That's the crucial notion. So there's something, again, in this looming otherness, when we symbolize it in the future, in its own present moment, it will be as if it was always there, but it emerged through us. So this is, this is to me, this is to me the crucial notion. That's, that's, I think that's the, I'm really happy here again in the first, 
trilogue, I think we did a good job describing the logic of the emergence of the archetypes. I think in this trilogue, we're also doing a good job of pushing into a totally interesting, I would say, alien territory, because it's 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 kind of like the it's kind of like it's kind of like the crack in the archetypes. The crack in the archetypes. There's otherness there, and there's a new wheel being birthed. So I'll pass that to you, Kevin, for your final thoughts, and then Daniel and and and. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's always interesting to me to see where we go and where the the energy wants to travel, right? Where the momentum is. And this time it did seem to go into this primordial, non-symbolic, otherness, alien territory, which is great. I think it's exciting. Um, what you just said, Kidel, is really fascinating because it begs the question, if the archetypes emerge from seeming nothingness, and they're non-fixed, so we can create and destroy them at any time in the Ouroboric wheel of samsara, then it really points to an idea that there are positions or geometries or constellations that we cannot escape. You can, you can temporarily enter the nothingness, as you were describing, Daniel, like become empty, no mind, bodhi mind, right? Samadhi, and just become compassion. And yet from others' perspective, you're still fulfilling an archetypal role. And that is inescapable. As long as we're playing the human game, which we are playing the human game. So it's really, it's quite exciting. On one end, it's kind of terrifying because we can't break out of this symbolic architecture in in some sense. Um, There is a big piece here on language, I think, as language evolves, and maybe it's not just inventing new words, maybe there is really something like telepathy. Maybe there is really something like body language that conveys vast amounts of information that we don't pick up on. I think pheromones is one, one way to go on that layer because animals seem to do an amazing job with that language. But anyway, um, on one hand, there's that. It's, it's constricting. On another hand, it's it's very empowering because in that Ouroboros, as you just pointed out, Cadell, we can destroy our categories. And that's quite empowering because a lot of the categories handed down to us were quite maladaptive, especially around man and woman and those archetypes. So if it follows that we can destroy those categories and the serpent can eat its tail and metabolize and grow a new body then we can grow new archetypes and we can grow them based on the real of the divide between men and women, the gap, the, the edge, the tension, the very real modern challenges that we're all facing, which is not challenges of scarcity. Like if I can't hunt and kill that gazelle, my tribe will starve. Now it's how do I text 30 women on Tinder or how do I stay in a marriage with four kids when I'm running a, seven-figure tech company. You know, there's very different evolutionary problems we're facing. So where I leave this in summary is really, let's pioneer forward into the alien territory, confront these paradoxes, and recreate, re-envision traditional archetypes of masculinity and femininity that work for everyone. That's my campaign speech to you, Daniel. 
Thank you both. I mean, it's it's hard to to top and to to put some some good points adding to that because what I'm seeing like we're looking forward to this luminous otherness. We're looking forward to to a bright future. We can have hope from my side. We can recategorize a so masculinity, femininity to an actual uh, importance to our nowadays societies and challenges or also evolution that, that draws into that. And for, for me, the biggest question that arises up there is like, how are we going to be able to, to organize ourselves in, in a new area that is, first of all, very much primed by information like this is the layer that we were talking about, like emergence of something new. That information mind is, is like the, the, the driving force of this evolutionary emergence. And uh, how we can really, maybe with technology, as Cadell pointed out, see the possibility to stay in such a singularity present where our evolutionary process won't be any, any more something material or bodily existent like a baby, but maybe completely something else. You know? So looking into that, that we are having more into information going maybe less out of a material evolution into something more what some people might call a spiritual evolution. And uh, that makes me kind of exciting, you know, because that means we, we're moving some, somewhere forward and we're not uh, getting stuck in this old wheel that seemingly nowadays also is kind of breaking apart more and more. And we, we see that a lot of things doesn't make sense anymore for our evolution of of what, you know, what is the evolution that emerges maybe even out of ourselves that is enabled by a new way of society, digitally driven, maybe not anymore based on a physical reproduction, but into another real of, of being, I don't know. And from, from that perspective, I think we, we can try to think and name it, but the other otherness that is in woman that we as as the other as man try to integrate is a lot of this unconscious, revealing the, the unconscious, which and this is where I'm heading being more a Jungian type of uh, unconscious uh, um, perceiver of, of of the unconscious where I say it is collective. Let's get into a collective consciousness too to be able to, to organize our synchronicity to be able to see singularity in each one of us. So this is my, my last statement. Okay, I, I, I will, I will uh, quickly try to um, 
respond respond to that because and try and, and and try and link it back to the first quote to try to see where it leaves us. So the crucial aspect of the quote was that to think of the unconscious not as reified eternal ideas like man woman in the collective unconscious but to see the unconscious as the place of pure potential pure virtual potential which manifests itself through transference manifests itself through intimate speech so that point is saying the field is collective the unconscious is a collective field but it's not a collective field that's predetermined by ideas but a collective field that has to be explored through transference through intimate conversations and so forth so i think in that sense what i'm trying to say is it's still a collective unconscious but it's a collective unconscious which has no identity that's the that's the that's the crucial notion is this it's non it has no identity in itself merely merely works through what is possible through speech so anyway i think that's 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 where where i i i could i could leave it and uh, kevin if you want to send us out Yeah, gentlemen, as always, thank you. It's very thought provoking. And we went into some really deep water today. Shocker. I imagine the rest of these second set of trilogues will follow suit and we'll just keep going deeper and deeper. And I want to be, send a big thank you to everyone that's listening and watching live. And if you're watching later, just please, please feel free to ask questions or share this video um, with your friends and family or with us. And and ask questions if you're curious or some of this stuff is resonating with you or it's causing you to, to wonder. Um, I will link below the discussion group for our new book, Sex, Masculinity, God, The Trilogues. It's available now on Amazon. We'd love for you all to read that. If you love this topic and you like our style and this kind of triadic structure, you'll really love the book. So really excited to continue this journey, gentlemen. And as always, stay blessed, go forth, and meet the other. See y'all next time.